This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. God is desiring to do something in our midst. I'm very confident of that fact. And it's something that I don't believe he just wants to do here. I believe he wants to do it in the global church, capital C. We are a small C. We are a, uh, a piece of a whole. And yet we are a whole in and of ourselves. Just like our individual body. I'm, I'm an individual uh, small B body. But then together we make up the body of Christ. And I can be filled with the life of the Holy Spirit. And yet we as a whole also have the Spirit working within us, and we are called members of a body. And so that mystery is important for us to understand, especially when it comes to the issue of reviving the church and revival coming and sweeping uh, through the land. For that to take place, it starts in individual bodies and works out into a local body, which then is meant to progress into the body, capital B. But it's very important that it starts here. There are so many different things that will stagnate and hinder that flow of life. And, I mean, we could get it all out on the table. And we could get a you know, big uh, whiteboard or blackboard up here. And I could say, so what are some of the things that hinder the forward progression of life uh, in and through us? And we could probably come up with quite the list. It might be rather depressing. And yet many of us are familiar with what hinders. We struggle with what progresses. And that's what I want to talk about uh, today. Caramelized saints. Now, for those of you that know about caramel, uh, you'd think I'm saying caramelized saints, and I'm not. This is a play on words very purposely for those of you that are grammaticians and are concerned about me. Uh, Caramelized, there's a place in uh, ancient uh, Israel called Mount Carmel. And it is a very, very important spot, and I would like us all to visit it spiritually today. So this is called the second step towards changing the world. And for those of you that missed last week, that could be a little confusing. Last week's subtitle was the first step towards changing the world. And uh, so that'll teach you to miss a week. Uh, now you're totally confused. Uh, Isaiah 59, 19. Isaiah 59 was the text uh, that was used for the very, very first sermon uh, in this uh, building, for this church. Actually, I should say the first sermon that was given amongst this body wasn't by me. It was by Hudson, who got up and said, did you know that God wants us to help the orphans? So that was the first one. And then the second one was on Isaiah 59, God looking for an intercessor and one who would make up the gap. And that intercessor that he found was himself. And he made up the gap. But Isaiah 59 is talking about the absolute breakdown in the culture, in the culture of uh, Israel. And what we see is a complete decadence that is sweeping through that nation. 
And is there any hope? Is there anyone that can solve this riddle? Is there anyone? Truth has fallen in the streets and judgment has turned away backwards. It's Isaiah 59. I'd love to quote that. Because that's exactly what I see in today's world. And when you read Isaiah 59, you would say, is it talking about back then or is it talking about right now? I would say it's an incredible picture of North America. Incredible. And in the midst of this onslaught of the enemy, in the midst of this darkness that is pervading the culture, you see God rising up with a solution, which we see in the big picture is Jesus Christ. But in the individual moments where we take that same Isaiah 59 picture and bring it into our day today, we recognize that God still has a solution that he raises up. It hasn't changed. It's still Jesus Christ. And yet, very specifically, there is a truth in there that is declared that I think is important for us to build on. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. That's, that word for a standard against him is a really odd Hebrew concept because it means to shoo away. And so it sounds like uh, the exact opposite, but what it would mean in this is the enemy comes in like a flood and God literally pushes it back and causes it to flee. In other words, it's such a mighty picture of what God does in response to the enemy's engagement with our culture. The enemy has an agenda and he wants to destroy this culture in which we live. I am not giving news to any of you here. This is obvious. The enemy has an agenda to take down this culture, which at one point in time was a beacon of light, a, a place of refuge for those that desired to seek after Jehovah God, that desired to make the name of Jesus the name on their life. And this was a place of safety for them. And now it has become a place of great danger for anyone who would boldly stand for the truth of Jesus Christ. There's two ways that you can live in this culture. You can be a Christian and keep your mouth shut. Don't say this, don't say this, and never try and do this. You'll be fine. Or you could be a Christian, as the Bible would declare a Christian to be, and rise up and take a stand. Raise up a standard in this generation, and you will find that the same ancient persecution that has always been wielded against the saints of God is very present tense today. A quick review. If we are going to discuss the second step towards changing the world, let's not forget the first step. So this is just to be nice to all of you that missed last week. At the same time, for all of you that were here last week, you'd probably be like, I cannot remember at all what the first step was. Uh That's actually the whole point of my message. (laughs) Going after revival was the name of last week's message. In other words, it wasn't waiting for revival. It was going after revival. You see a difference between the two. In other words, if God has promised something, then let's go get it. I I was giving an illustration to uh, Lily and Reese this week, and they were sitting on the hearth, and it was a little bit of a uh, a discipline time. And I said, you know, there's good behavior to be had in Jesus Christ. And so, see that banana over there on the counter? You're hungry right now. And if, and if I said, uh, yeah, that banana is yours, and that you kept sitting here complaining about being hungry and saying, yeah, I understand, Daddy. Yeah, I understand, and nodding along, what's wrong? And they said it very clearly. We're not getting up and getting it. I go, that's right. You see, God has laid out for us everything we need. So last week, I gave the illustration of the farmer. The farmer has the land. He has the seeds. 
And God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to till that soil. I want you to plant that seed. I want you to water that land. Then I want you to weed it. I want you to care for it. And then I want you to wait. And I want you to wait. I want you to keep watering, keep weeding. Then I want you to wait. Then I want you to keep watering, keep weeding. And I want you to keep waiting, 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 waiting. And that harvest will, in fact, come. It is guaranteed. It's the laws of farming. It is based on the very character and infrastructure of God's kingdom. Every bit of harvesting comes out the exact way. We want to bring in a harvest as the church of Jesus Christ. We want to bear much fruit. There's laws of farming. And if we do this, and we do this, and we do this, the outcome is always predictable. God will come through. So, if we're not getting that harvest, where's the problem lying? In God or in us? What is a revival in the church of Jesus Christ when the body of Christ is brought again to its proper intensity for obedience to and purity in Jesus Christ? And I went through each one of these, and I'm going to do a quick review. Intensity for Jesus Christ. Imagine just in your soul being able to freshly ratify that the truth of the gospel the work of grace upon that cross, the resurrected Christ, the one who has ascended to the right hand of the Father and sits enthroned, all things under his feet. He has done it. He has won the victory. He has crushed the head of the serpent. This is worthy of all my energy, all my hours, all my days, all my talents, all my resources, all my time, all my life. This is when you see revival taking place, when you begin to freshly ratify that this truth is worthy, is deserving of every fiber of your being. Because what we do is we rationalize how we still need our own time. We still need our own resource. We still need our own pleasure source. God, I'll give you this much. I'll tithe my 10%. And as a result, we will languish in mediocrity as the church of Jesus Christ. Obedience to Jesus Whatever he asks me to make right, I will. Whatever he asks me to confess, I will. Whatever he says needs to go, it will. Whatever he says needs to be added, it will. Whoever he asks me to share the gospel with, I will. And wherever he asks me to go, no matter the suffering and the difficulties that may attend to the action, I will go. Revival. When that begins to stir within us, we begin to relate to God with such readiness the world will change. You aren't the only one that will change. The world will change. When that starts hanging out on this earth again, watch out world. Purity in. Search me, O Lord, and know my thoughts. If there be any wickedness in me, expose it. If there be any motive in my soul that is ulterior to your agenda in my life, bring it to the surface that I may get rid of it. If there be any habit that is undermining my singular devotion to you, eradicate it. The principle of revivals. God will when man tills. God endows when man plows. God endues when man pursues. In other words, God has said to the farmer, you plant and you do exactly as I asked you to do, you'll get a crop. It's the principle of the farmer. That's actually what is the truth even related to us in this context. You want to yield fruit in your life. Well, be like the farmer. Do exactly as you're asked to do and do it diligently. You will find that God responds to those who diligently seek him. To those who diligently apply truth, they will receive. You knock, he will open. You seek, you will find. Promise, guarantee you can take it to the bank. This is how our God works. 
Many of us have a fuzzy mystery when it comes to our relationship with God. And we have a fuzzy mystery when it comes to our expectation of God moving in this earth. God is waiting for us to do what he's asked us to do. And if we do what he has asked us to do, he will do what he has promised to do. Second, there are four key ingredients in every revival. Men praying, men obeying, God responding, the church activating. You see, no revival has ever taken place in this earth without men praying. No revival has ever taken place with just men praying. It also is men obeying. When they are convicted of sin, they respond. When, they say, when God moves upon them to go speak to someone, they do. When they're asked to get up and speak, even though they're trembling, they do. And when these two things begin to work together, what you see is God moves in a very powerful way. And then the church around is activated and the world around is changed. Now, for those of you that know the mysterious workings of God, because there is a mysterious dimension to it, the mystery isn't here. The mystery is how we get those men praying in the first place. And that is part of what God is doing here. I have a burden. Where did it come from? I, I don't know. I don't know that it came from you. I think it came from him. I have a burden that we do not excuse our, and justify ourselves in our defeat. I do not want to be a church that thinks high thoughts of God and lives low lives. I want to be a church that thinks high thoughts and lives out the Christian life with gusto. Do you blame me? Where is that coming from? Is that coming from the devil? Is the devil inciting saying, yeah, be a true Christian? Let God examine you, Eric. Let him search every nook and cranny of your life and expose any hidden sin. That's not coming from the devil. That's coming from the Holy Spirit who wants this body and he wants this body as a whole. We have our creative ways of pushing God out and sounding spiritual the whole time. And so that's why I'm going back to the same exact thing and I'm hitting on the same nail. I'm saying, I want this in our church. A revival isn't supposed to be a mysterious move of the Holy Spirit. It's supposed to be the obvious response of a God who has promised and cannot lie. When a farmer tills, when a farmer tills, plants, waters, weeds, waters, weeds, waters, weeds, and waits, 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 and waits, then comes the life, the harvest, the bounty. It's not mysterious. It's God's built-in response to man doing as God has told him to do. A farmer's obedience to the laws of farming equals a great harvest. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, like that farmer. You learn to suffer long, to be patient with long patience. Remember that, uh, that word I explained to you last week? It's long patience. It's not just patience. It's patience over time where you recognize that when you have set that seed into the ground and you water it and you continue in that farmer position, heeding the laws of farming, that it will bear fruit. In due time, the coming of the Lord is at hand. So he says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. That means fix yourself into this position. I'm not moving from it. I know what God has commissioned me to. He's asked me to till this soil, to plant this seed, to water, to weed, and to wait. And I will not move from this position until the coming of the Lord. Until he has moved and changed things. So he says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand.
That is the phrase that keeps coming over and over in my soul. The coming of the Lord is at hand. So what's my job? My job is to be patient and to establish myself into position, to fix my gaze on him and say, I'm about one thing, Lord. I'm about you. I'm about the pursuit of you. But Eric, you sure do seem easily distracted. I am, I confess, easily distracted. I can't tell you how many sermons I've given on focus, on being, on being aimed at one singular thing, and that yours truly is still distracted. And it really bothers me. I don't like being distracted, but I am distracted. And so I've studied myself for years to understand what causes this. Why is it that I can so easily, I can get a vision, I can see it, and God says, go after it. <clears throat> and then I go after it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not just like, eh, and walk. I go after it. But then, what, the glitter of some metallic substance over here in the bush? Uh-huh. You know, squirrel. Uh, you get off so quickly. We have a propensity towards idiocy. Simply put, I recognize that I so quickly can lose my patient position in the establishment of my heart towards one singular thing. And so it's like, oh, Eric, I thought you were farming. Oh, well, yeah, I farm, you know, just a little bit each week, and the rest of the week I'm busy getting distracted with other things. Eric, are you wanting a revival? Are you after that? Do you feel that I've given you a burden for that, that I want to cultivate that in your life, in your family, and in your church? Yes, I do. Then why are you focusing on this right now? Well, I just, you know, needed a little mental exercise. Eric, are you willing to give up everything that would distract and go after one thing? So I recognize in my own life the propensity to give a message called going after revival and to go after revival and then to forget that I'm going after revival and then to do other things and then to remember, wait a minute, wait a minute, wasn't I going after revival? That's what I want to see change. I want to recognize that my occupation in this earth is farming. I want to recognize that I am doing something very specific and it's the most important thing on earth that is taking place. Something is going on inside of me that matters at the highest levels, even though CNN can care less about it. It is of great significance because it's the movement of God in this earth. You see, the enemy is coming like a flood and he's stirring in us to raise up a standard. How does he resist the devil? How does he push him back? Through us. So how is the Lord going to raise up a standard? Through us. He's waiting for men and women to take it seriously instead of just bemoan the fact that this world is going to the dogs. Instead of just clucking our tongues when we watch Fox News and say, oh, I can't believe how terrible it is out there. That we allow something heavenly to take place in here. In here. What, how much does it matter to you to see something change in this earth? Do you only casually care or do you really care? Our kids are inheriting a pile of junk. This world is going to hell and quick. And yet we have a season where we have something to say and we can do something. The question is, are we going to be distracted with the metallic substance in the bush or are we going to be focused on one singular thing? How do we find a revival right here? Let's heed the simple laws of farming. Last week, we finished up with breaking the fallow ground. 
our exhortation to each of you as you left was to take that list and to allow the Spirit of God to search you, to try you, and to cultivate that life in you. Where there is sin, bring, allow God to bring it to the surface and remove it. He forgives. He washes. But those sins are hindering the free flow of grace in and through our life. If you want God to work through your life, you cannot harbor sin. You cannot justify even the smallest indiscretions. He who knows what he ought to be doing and is not doing it is sinning. And so when we know how we ought to be living, let's remove those things. Let's get the junk out of the way so that we can be singular in our focus. The quandary. How can we hear last week's message and still not have a revival? This is what weighs upon me. I don't want to give up on this point. And so the question is, Eric, would you be willing to preach 400 straight messages on this exact point until you get it, your family gets it, and your church gets it? That just sounds like a lot, 400. Yes. That's the sort of burden I have here. What's the good of us having sound doctrine in all these other areas if we are not walking in right relationship with the living God and allowing him to flow through our lives and exhibit his love to this earth? What's the good of it? You ever heard my discussion on uh, heresy? And I say most people are so concerned about doctrinal heresy and they forget about behavioral heresy. So that you can have correct doctrine and live like, a, like an evil guy? I mean, what, uh, uh, something seems wrong there. What's most important in the kingdom of heaven? The behavior. Now, you can't have good behavior if your doctrine's all wacko. However, what's the good of having correct doctrine if your behavior doesn't model Jesus? How will you know his disciples? Not by their doctrine, but by their love. Their love for one another. You see, it's the life that exhibits the reality of the center core. I don't want us to have the best doctrine and the worst lives. That's what shoes away the world from truth. I want us to live it. I don't know how many of you are frustrated with different aspects of your life. Where it's just like, boy, I was really on track. And I just get so just, that my attitude here, the way I spoke to this person, oh, this area of my life, oh, it's frustrating. Well, if you're frustrated, you might want to listen to this message. You see, God's interested in touching that in changing that, but you can't justify it and say, well, I want, I want to live godly, but on my terms. No, no, that's like a farmer saying, I want crops and I'm going to watch TV all day. You see, you do not get that fruit out of the ground when you do not heed the laws of farming. If you do not become a good farmer and you do not till that territory well, if you do not plant good seed if you do not water with the living water, if you do not do as you're supposed to do, you're not going to get what you're desiring. But if you desire the life of Jesus to crescendo through this body, then there are very specific things that God is laying out for us. Diversion. This is the word for the last seven days for me. Diversion. It's sort of an old-fashioned word. Uh, I saw some, I don't know if it's, uh, Anna Green Gables or some uh, one of those romantic era movies. Uh, that's, that's what romantic era movies do, I guess. That's what they look like. <laughs> that use the word diversions. Uh, and so for some reason it's in my head that way. But it's an old school word 
that is a distraction. It's a, just a fancy word for distractions, diversions. But they're activities that may in and of themselves be perfectly harmless and amoral. In other words, they don't have a moral content. Like watching a movie is an amoral activity. It doesn't have a moral content. It's what you're watching, and it's how you're engaging it in the interior of your life that matters. Are you addicted to movies? Are you watching movies that are feeding the flesh? That's what gives it a moral value. But in and of itself, a movie doesn't have moral value. Eating food doesn't have moral value. All of these things, but there's things that can take us away because they have undue emphasis in our life. And so something that may be amoral, like cars suddenly becomes a fixation. And everything you're doing is thinking about cars, which is really funny because I don't think about cars that often, right? But some people do. For some, I mean, we had a whole guys gathering was a couple, over the summer and the guys were sharing the different things that are like they fixate on and they, they get distracted with. Some of you were in that group because I see you laughing. And what, what was one of those? You guys need to help me with it. One that I said, you've got to be kidding. It was like uh, trucks. Trucks? Is that what it was? Trucks. It's like, well, you know what? I mean, trucks are really nice, but could you imagine thinking about trucks all day long? I mean, what a bizarre thing. That's like marshmallows. You know, it's like marshmallows. Just, I mean, marshmallow. And every time you're, you're thinking, you're thinking about a marshmallow. It's just like there's things that just don't fit in my brain. And yet, for each of us, we have things that can easily create a diversion for us. The number one reason why these benevolent, pure, and righteous intentions are thwarted and stopped from bearing fruit. Why is it that we can have benevolent, pure, and righteous intentions? Jesus, I want to serve you. Jesus, I want you to get glory in my life. Jesus, I want a revival right here. Jesus, we want a revival right here. Great intentions, and that's by the Spirit of God. But what is it that is thwarting this? Diversions. Simply put, the saints' attentions are diverted to other objects, and they forget to keep doing the work of the farmer. You see, if a farmer is halfway plowed, and then he sees the shiny metallic substance in the bush and leaves his, his plow and goes to check out the shiny substance and doesn't return to his plow, forgets that he even was plowing, what kind of harvest is he getting out of that? Now, he started well. There's nothing wrong with the fact that he said, okay, God, so I'm supposed to plow. However, he left the plow when his fields were half plowed, and he never planted the seed. You see, this is where many of us are right now. We mean well, but we are being diverted from a clear focus on one thing. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Eric, go plow this field. All right, yes, Lord. So I spend three days plowing, and then I'm diverted on Wednesday? It's like, uh, something's wrong there. It's called sin. I know. That's not the word we really wanted to you know, whip out to describe it. But when you know what you ought to do, and then you don't do it, to you it is sin. Because you know something. The Spirit of God has given you an understanding of what obedience would be. And so then, you are responsible. Remember that proverb, the strong man retains his riches. When you are given a clear command from God, it's riches. It is good stuff. You must retain it. However, we are so easily distracted. You need to know that about yourself so that when you go out to start plowing and you have bombs going off and metallic substances glimmering all over the place, squirrels climbing every tree, you stay focused, hand to plow. 
I know what I'm supposed to be doing, and that's plowing a field right now. Spirit of God, I'm going to lay my life before you. I'm going to allow you to search me, and I'm not going to get distracted until you're done. You see, we are distractible, divertible. The clear command, you also be patient. Stay in that position and endure this position with long patience. Establish your hearts. You stay with hands to plow. You take the seed I've given you. You plant it. You water it. Stay focused, Eric. Stay focused. But what about that metallic gleam? Stay focused, Eric. Stay focused. Now, I feel like even in describing myself, the way I feel probably parenting some of my younger kids, where it's just like, okay, here's what I need you to do. I'm going to give you three tasks. I want you to take this coat into the mudroom and hang it up. See those shoes? I want you to knock off the dirt outside, and then I want you to put them away in the mudroom. Then I want you to go downstairs and make your bed. All right? Can you repeat it to me? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you heard it. All right, go. And then not one of the things is done. Why? There was a strange diversion that took place. Now, in that... That's precisely what I would like to identify as the very same thing that's happening inside of even us as adults. But spiritually speaking, God has given us a very clear assignment of what we need to do. Could you imagine if an angel of God came up and said, I'm going to give you all one assignment this week. I want you to go home, take that list from last week, the breaking at the fallow ground, and I want you to spend at least 10 hours in God's presence. And I want you to allow the Spirit of God to work through every single one of those. At least 10 hours. You can spend more. Now what? An angel just gave us an assignment. I mean, this is pretty big. God's already given us the assignment. Now, it might not have hours associated with it, but it's a clear assignment. We don't take it seriously. For whatever reason, we detach our church experience from our rest of the week experience. It's like you can get a command here, a clear word from God here, but then go back home and feel like it's a different world? This is reality. And if we don't respond to this, we're sunk out there. This is the gift of grace. God is giving us the clear message of what we need to do, how we need to do it. If we don't do it, we die. If we do do it, we live. We produce fruit. We change the world in which we live. Break up the fallow ground. Allow the Holy Spirit to convict. Break up the compacted soil of your heart and wholly remove the hindrances in your soul that are blocking revival. This is a clear statement to us. This is what we know to do. Heed the Holy Spirit and let him prepare the soil of your hearts to receive grace. Pursue the reviving of our Lord with long patience and with singularity and constancy of focus and intentionality. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. God desires to do something in each of our lives. However, there is a responsibility on this human side to be able to say, yes, Lord. And when you see that gleam of metallic in the bush off to the side, the fireworks displays, the bombs that are saying, Eric, or use your name, look over here. Take a little break. You've been pushing that plow for a long time. That seed bag must be getting really heavy. Stay focused. I know what I'm here for. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. When you know what you ought to be doing, do it. 
This leads us to the second step in the pursuit of a revival. I just went through all of that to get to the second step, which is the whole message we're giving. The test of Mount Carmel. Carmel. Now, that's not caramel. Okay, I know. We we get it mixed up as English speakers. Carmel. You know what it means in the Hebrew? The place of abundant fruit bearing, the place of reviving. It's a garden is actually what it is. It's a mountain that's a garden. And that's what this is. Carmel is a place where green springs forth. And so let's go on a trip to Mount Carmel. The scene in 1 Kings 18. I'm not going to have the time to read through this, but I've gone through the story many times in this church, and that is the story of the test, the prophets of Baal and of the grove against Elijah, the prophet. And all of Israel has gone after false gods. This is a time of such utter darkness that has swept into the nation of Israel. The king and queen are Ahab and Jezebel. Okay, so, I mean, that's worthy of a a round of booze in and of itself. Horrible king, horrible queen. We have absolute decadence in the culture God is bringing judgment on this nation. And even after three and a half years of no rain, they still have not humbled themselves and turned back to Jehovah. All right? I mean, come on, guys. You see, what we have is some hardness, some some dryness. Mount Carmel isn't looking very lush right now, guys. Yeah, I know it's a garden. It's a place of green and, you know, everything grows on Carmel. I mean, if it doesn't grow anywhere else, you could at least take it to Carmel. You know it will grow there. Everything grows on Carmel. It's a place of life. And yet, even Carmel has grown brown. It hasn't rained in Israel for three and a half years. The land is destitute. Jehovah God is forgotten. The people of Israel have fallen head over heels in love with Baal. Now, I know I'm talking about something that happens a long time ago. However, what I'm actually describing is our backyard. And for some of us, we are strangely allured to the culture that is going in this direction. We are vulnerable to hang out with the prophets of Baal and to pat them on the back and say, you know, I don't know why Jehovah and Baal can't get along. I mean, look, you guys seem to mean well. This is some good stuff. I mean, you guys have some good plans for our country. Elijah the prophet calls the nation up to Mount Carmel. That's where he calls them. Hey, guys. Let's go to the place of reviving. The once lush garden land is brown and ugly, but this is the spot of reviving. The steps to becoming caramelized. So if we don't, as the saints of God, break up the fallow ground, the first step as we pursue revival is to allow the Spirit of God to break up this compacted soil, this justification. We have, some of us have justifications for our sin way down here. And we're not feeling conviction for it anymore because we hardened to that a long time ago because it was so trivial and so small. We saw someone else in the church that was taking it very seriously and we were like, "Uh, I'm not going in that direction. And we justified. And as a result, there's layer of earth upon earth. And God says, I can't grow anything in that. You see, unless you go back to your last point of obedience and your obedience is up to date, then you cannot grow with God. So God needs to break up that 
that compacted earth and get us back to our previous point of obedience where God last was clear with us. And he said, you see, you knew what you ought to do, but you didn't do it. Let's go right back to that and let's do it. You know that person I asked you to forgive? You know that person I asked you to go and make things right with and to be reconciled with? Do you remember that one thing I told you to give up? And I said, I don't want you touching that anymore. Yeah, that. You see, it's weird how quickly those, we know what he's talking about. But unless we allow him in and we allow that till to take to, that blade to cut through that earth and begin to turn it up and allow that lightness to once again come, that readiness to receive from God, we can't move forward. So that's important. But then the steps to becoming caramelized, this is the next one. You see, what's happening in Mount Carmel is more than just calling down fire from heaven. A great story, by the way. And then Elijah destroys all the prophets of Baal. But there's something else. You know what else happened next? Elijah says, I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. And then what does he do? On Mount Carmel, the place of reviving, he bends his knees and puts his head between his knees. And he cries out for God to bring rain back to this territory, to this land. Why do, why do we need rain? For the lushness to return, for the life to spring forth. God, bring the rain! And he puts his head between his knees and cries out for it. The sky is cloudless. There's nothing there. So what does he do? Like a farmer, he's patient and he establishes his heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He knows what God wants to do. So what does he do? Sticks his head between his knees again. Bows down before God and calls out for God to bring rain. Looks up, sends his servant out to look for a cloud. Guess what? Nothing. So what does Elijah do? Give up? He does what a farmer would do. He keeps watering. He keeps weeding. And he keeps waiting. He sticks his head between his knees and cries out for rain. Sends his servant. Look for a cloud in the sky. His servant says there's none. Nothing. It's cloudless. Clear blue. Nice day. So what does Elijah do? Give up? No, he pulls a farmer. And he sticks his head between his knees to the ground and he cries out for rain. You see a pattern here? This is what it means to be caramelized. To be caramelized is one who approaches Carmel and does not leave until the rain comes. You see, we have a need. And unless we get that rain... We're going down. The church cannot hang out in its current condition much longer. We are weak. We are vulnerable to the powers of sin because of it. We are being ravaged as the body of Christ. Some of you know it physically in our bodies. We're being ravaged. Some of you understand it spiritually. The vulnerability to sin that the body of Christ is experiencing right now in this generation, in this country, is off the charts. The amount of pastors that are falling into sexual sin is hitting all-time highs. Not acceptable. Either we finally take it seriously and we say, this stops now. And we get on our knees, we stick our head between those knees, and we cry out for the return of rain. First, we break up the fallow ground. That's the first step. If you don't do that, the second one means nothing. But the second one, we become caramelized. And we do not leave 
until we see the return of rain. Now, when I say we do not leave, it does not mean this is Mount Carmel here. That means we do not leave our singularity of focus and pursuit. We're the neighbor that knocks on the door and says, kink, 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 kink. I need bread. Kink, 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 kink. I need bread. And then the guy says, hey, I'm in bed with my family, which is sort of a strange statement. Uh, could you leave me alone? Kink, 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 kink. That's actually what I've done in prayer many times. I make that noise too, and I think if it's that irritating to me, it has to be irritating to God. So God, I'm going to keep knocking until, until I see this happen. You see, that's what it means to be persistent. Importunate is the old-fashioned word for it. Persevering like the farmer. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Be patient and establish your hearts. God will come through when we do this. He guarantees to do this. Our faith is in his promise, his nature. He cannot lie. He has said it. Will he not do it? Bold obedience. Audacious proving. The whole story on Mount Carmel is something else. I mean, could you imagine calling all the nation, getting all the prophets of Baal? You know the reason why Ahab did this, by the way? Because some of you, could, if you read the story, like, why would the king allow this little prophet to push him around? You know why? Because Ahab knew he couldn't get back the rain unless Elijah prayed for it. And so he needed Elijah, needed to do what Elijah wanted. He's like, okay, what do I need to do to get rain? Bring everyone up to Mount Carmel. All right. And then Elijah sets forth the ultimate test. The God that sends forth fire to consume this altar, he's God. He's the real God. And so the prophets of Baal have an opportunity to prove that Baal's real. And uh, they don't pull it off. And Elijah does. God brings down fire from heaven to consume the altar. Incredible story. Audacious proving. And then we have long patience. He prayed seven times. Go check to see if there's a cloud in the sky. Go check! On the seventh time, well, there's like a cloud the size of a man's fist. Fervent praying. Big expectancy. Absolute confidence the rain is coming. What you see is what takes place on Carmel. This is what's needed. He had long patience. He had fervent praying. In fact, the entire definition of the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much is relating to Elijah and to this. In other words, you want to see something change the earth. You need to have fervent and effectual praying. If we're going to see this world change, it's not just allowing God to break up the compacted earth, but it's obeying him and saying, Eric, your job isn't necessarily a real till or a plow. I've given you prayer. And when you do as I've asked you to do, and you do it consistently, you will see that I will come. The key, stay on Carmel until the rain comes. It doesn't make any sense for us to forsake our task. You hear the sound of an abundance of rain. That's what Elijah said. I hear it. I hear it. I don't know if any of you hear it or if it's just me. But I know God wants to do something. I know it, and I know that I know it. I was even in my prayer time this morning going, am I making that up because it sounds spiritual? No. 
I know it. And you know what? It makes me just as uncomfortable as it makes you. To be honest, a movement of grace where God comes through and has full ownership still touches my human side. I have, I have a human side, by the way, in case I need to freshly tell you that. I have a human side, a natural man that still recoils at death, recoils at suffering, recoils at public mockery and flogging. And yet there's a greater side that I let speak, and that is the voice of the Spirit of God. And I say, you own this. And if you lead me in that direction, you'll grant me the grace for it. I trust you. I want this, though it makes me tremble. I want God to have his due. I want God to have his way. So what do we need to do? Kick out the diversions. This last week, God was dealing with me on this. And what's funny is I, if, if, we were to, if you were to ask me, say a few weeks ago, and say, so Eric, uh, diversions, just a word I want you to think about. Mm, good word. And I probably would have said something about Anne of Green Gables or you know, some uh, romantic era movie. Say, I've heard that word before. And uh, Eric, do you have any diversions in your life? Anything that's like distracting you, that's taking you off course from your clear pursuit of Jesus Christ? Well, I'm pretty aggressive in getting those out. Uh, that's like one of the key things that I know God has convicted me about in the past. So I am very uh, vigilant and watchful over my soul with those. So what is God dealing with this week? It's sort of like <clears throat> diversions. Yeah, I was studying revival this last week, and this is actually the word that came up. This is the number one thing that has thwarted more revivals than anything else. is that the church gets distracted. They're given a clear assignment, they have a clear vision, and then they get off course. So... Eric, if we're going to start with you like you keep talking about, start with me, God. All right? We're going to start with you. Diversions. What diversions? Boy, I tell you what. He was all over it this week. There were all sorts of things that would take my gaze subtly off. Now, my gaze wasn't like way over there. It was just like over here. I mean, it was still in the same ballpark. I mean, you had the, you know, the, the, the same vibe to it. I had diversions. And so as, I don't know, it was like Wednesday of this last week, I literally cut out every single thing that God put his finger on it. Strange. But it was certainly, you know, like if you go on a fast, things turn black and white. The color can be just immediately gone from life. I don't know. I've only lived in this body. I don't know what it's like. Some people love fasting. Fasting is literally a choice. When I fast, I know I get very weak. I think it's my high metabolism. It doesn't work well with fasting. So I stand up and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And that's like day one, day two, day three, day four. I mean, I can't even get past it. And some of the, oh, when you fast for a longer time, it gets easier. Well, I still have not found that. But here's what I would say. When you remove something that there is a, a sense of soul need for, you go into a little bit of a depression funk. It's, it's weird. It's, it's subtle. It's just sort of like, oh boy, would I really like... Now suddenly you really want that. Before, it's like you didn't even notice it because you always had it. But then when you remove it, it's like, oh, I just would like to have that. And so from Wednesday on, as I was going through this, and these subtle, ridiculous things, it's embarrassing. That's why I'm hesitating to tell you any of them, because it's embarrassing. It's like, come on, that's, that's nonsense. That's ridiculous. That's not diverting me. Well, I found out that it was when I took it out. Isn't that an interesting statement? Because every time, every, here's my rule. Every time in my soul that I long for one of those diversions or I pause and I say, oh, I did, 
I pray for revival. I tell you what, it's, it's a pretty cool concept because guess what? I've been praying for revival. I'm keeping my hand on the plow. And so as we go through this, I don't want to assign to you how to respond to this. What I want to do is exhort you as the body to recognize that these are the things that are thwarting our forward progression. Kick out the diversions. Stay focused on the singular objective. Hold the position of prayer. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Mount Carmel, the place of proving to the unbelieving, God-forsaking world that Jehovah really is God Almighty. Do you remember the response of all of Israel? They said, the Lord, which is Jehovah, he is God. It was proven before them. Why? Because one man held his position. One man stood boldly for Jesus Christ. One! That was a weird way to say one. Usually you don't say one with your thumb. One! Caramelized saints. What's a caramelized saint? Now, I have a little play on words here, so hopefully you guys enjoy it. Believers that stick. See? That's the caramel uh, thing. Believers that stick it out on Mount Carmel. Endure the cloudless skies with patience and press through until the rain comes. You know how difficult it is to keep pressing and keep believing that rain is coming when it hasn't rained for three and a half years or 35 years. Whatever it would be, it is hard when this world around you is mocking you. Right now, if you listen to the media, I, one, of the, one of the things that triggered a diversion is I saw a little video. You know those videos that somehow someone suggested or whatever, you get it in front of you, and it was some debate between a very godless, God-hating man and some Christian guy. And, the, you know, in the description it said something like the Christian just totally toasted him. And so, you know, that's always sort of fun to, to watch. And I tell you, all I heard was the mocking. And I'm so used to hearing it. The mocking, derisive voice that says, you are an idiot. You actually believe this? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. The whole audience laughs. The whole audience mocks. Yeah, yeah there we are. There we are. And you know how hard that is? To keep praying, saying, God will change this. God can even touch them. God can touch this godless audience, the ones that want to see the failure of the church. God can change them. And you stick your head between your knees and pray afresh. You see, you have to have a God-sized vision, and you need it now. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So to avail much, because that's not a typical term that we use today, to avail much. It means to wield amazing power in this world and to accomplish extraordinary deeds. So it says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man wields amazing power in this world and accomplishes extraordinary deeds. You know what? If we're caramelized, guys, that's the result. And that's a guarantee. That's a fact in Scripture. If we do what we are supposed to do, God will, in fact, do what he does. So to avail much, righteous men need to engage in effectual, fervent prayer. So allow me to give an amplified version of this scripture. Now, this is not the text of scripture. Just so you know, this is that very scripture with a ludi flair. Okay? Just so you guys know. When the saints of God come to Mount Carmel and pray, and pray, and pray, and pray, and pray until the rain comes. The rain won't just come. It will come in buckets and sheets like a Niagara and waterfall of life upon the dead and lifeless earth. 
fact. The question is, are we willing to go to Mount Carmel and be those saints? Are we willing to be believers in this age and generation of godlessness? Are we willing to stem the tide? The enemy is coming in like a flood. But it says the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against it. Are we willing to be that resistance? That resistance army that literally hits the enemy in the face, the nose, and knocks him back on his heels. Because we refuse to back down as the church of Jesus Christ, even though it seems like this nation is a goner. We still are breathing. We still are here. And we still believe that our God sits enthroned on high and he has defeated all the powers of earth and hell. We believe, people. Last time I checked, the weapons of our warfare are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds and anything that would exalt itself above the knowledge of God. We have the authority, the privilege, and the power to tear it down. That is fact. So either we are believers... Or we sheepishly hide in our closets and live a defeated life. I say, let's be triumphant. A diversion fast. Just, it's just a concept here. I'm not, I'm not demanding. I'm not commanding. I'm setting it before you. This is what I'm on. Is it hard, Eric? Yeah. It was harder in the first couple days, which is really embarrassing for me to say because I didn't think I had these diversions, okay? That's what was sort of hard for me. I think God just had to go to a new level, which is always embarrassing for me. I don't know why I'm embarrassed. It's like God sees it the whole time. But you always sort of want to think you're further along than you are, but God needs to bring you back to earth and say, no, no, Eric. You see, you still are distractible. I don't want to be. I want to be a caramelized saint. And so I just want to ask for you to consider, to allow the Spirit of God to lead you in saying, how seriously do you take this? Are you willing to take this message out of this room? Instead of hear it in this room, agree with it in this room, be inspired by it in this room, and then go out and look at shiny metal the entire week. God has given us an opportunity as the saints of God to change things. Name your diversions and decide if it might turn your gaze from this all-important task of bringing a reviving to your life and to the church in our day. Would you be willing to set it aside for a week? Just a week. A week. Would you be willing to forsake sucking on your mental candy for one week that your attentions may be sharpened to engage in this battle for the glory of God? I just want to finish with prayer. And I want to... Ask God on behalf of all of us for the courage and the boldness to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. Father, we acknowledge that we have a propensity towards diversion. We have a propensity to self-justify and to excuse ourselves even though your spirit is pricking us. Lord, I ask that as we pursue this, you would preserve us from the devil's version of condemnation, but that we would be open to your version of conviction. That, Lord, anything that stands in the way of us pursuing you with a single-minded focus, that you would touch and that you would remove. 
Lord, we are guilty of being distracted. We are guilty of knowing what we ought to do and not doing it. And Lord, I ask that you would forgive us for our sin. That you would wash us clean and afresh by your blood. And that you would give us boldness and courage to step forward out of this room today and do precisely what you are asking us to do. Without you, we can do nothing. We can't bring revival. But we can obey by the power of your Holy Spirit. We can do what you've asked us to do because you will enable us to as we step. You are the one who starts all of it and finishes it. You're the Alpha, the Omega. You are the beginning of our faith and you are the end of it. And we thank you for the powerful working that you have done in our lives, you are doing today, and that you will do moving forward. I ask for your mercy to be given to this nation. We are deserving of judgments and a swift one. Lord Jesus, we have had more truth as a nation. We've been exposed to it. We have access to it than any other nation in history. And we have forsaken you. Lord, we plead for your mercy and for more space, more time, that we might find repentance as a nation. You have a remnant still in this nation that has not yet been awakened. And I ask that you would use us as an instrument to see it happen. Lord, may we burn for you. May we not just flicker. We have one life on this earth and may it be lived right and well. We praise the living God who is worthy of his bride. And he's worthy of his bride being pure and spotless and without wrinkle. Lord, start with us. Revive us. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.